Shay, give the band a hand. They did a great job. You guys will do the offering. That's good. All right, so um, while they're doing the offering, I'm just going to do a couple of things real quick. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. Uh, and today, bring up the sermon slide for me real quick. Um, that's okay. You're forgiven. <laughs> Hashtag grace life. So you just you get forgiveness there, forgiveness and cleansing. All right, so I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden, and we're continuing this series on 2 Corinthians this summer. <clears throat> and today, this is a shout out. Where's Dottie? Dottie, where are you at? Where's your hand? Where are you at? Okay, she's back there. A little shout out to you. The name of my sermon today is Day of Hope. And yes, that was planned. I'm very excited about that. So, uh, the passage today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 5 through 10. I'm going to read a passage to you that, frankly, I think is a very mistaught, misunderstood, misapplied passage in 2 Corinthians. It's about the judgment seat of Christ. And I feel what has happened in the American church, maybe not even the American church, maybe the church since the beginning is, there is this teachment about the judgment seat of Christ where Christians go before this judgment seat and have their works judged. And there seems to have been, because of false teaching, maybe not false, that's, that's a little harsh, flawed teaching, that there develops a sense of fear and anxiety around this day. And it should not be. It should be a day of hope. I'll explain as we go. Let's read the passage. This is on the heels of the encouragement that he gave them about thriving in affliction. Remember, we talked about that for those of you that were not in sin and you were here last week. Those of you here last week. He talked about that, and then he goes right in from that. In the first part of chapter 5, he talks about we have these earthly tents that are just temporary, but Jesus and God are preparing us permanent dwelling places in heaven, and it's awesome. Then he comes in verse 5. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he's, in, he's building this anticipation of leaving the earth and being face-to-face -face with Jesus, right? You see that, right? That's, that's what he's building, this narrative, this picture, this painting, this image of people who are here, and it's okay, but we'd rather be there, over there in the future. Remember he said our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more exceeding eternal weight and glory. We preached on that last week. So whether we are at home or away, home being in front of Jesus, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a scary sounding verse, isn't it? Let's look at the history. Is this sound like an awkward transition? Because, you know, he just encouraged them. I am so proud of you, Corinthians. You have repented. You've turned back to the gospel. You've embraced my teaching again. You've gone through horrible affliction because of it. <clears throat> and even in the midst of your affliction, you're beaten down but not crushed. You're all these things. And he gives, he gives this great illustration about how nothing that happens to you is going to shake your faith. You are thriving in affliction. Then he goes from that to this judgment seat of Christ. Doesn't that sound kind of awkward, like strange? 
See, after teaching about thriving in affliction and the spirit man's supernatural ability to endure it through grace, Paul moves on to the theology of the judgment seat of Christ. Why would he go here? I thought he was trying to encourage it. I thought it was warm and fuzzy, like compassionate. And he's like, he really loves them. And man, you guys are great. You're doing so good. Be careful. Judgment seat of Christ. I mean, think about this. The whole tone of the book of 2 Corinthians is what? It's warm. It's encouraging. It's affectionate. And then somehow we're supposed to believe as a parenthetical verse right in the middle of this book, there's this warning. What do you think about the timing of this topic? Is it a fire and brimstone statement by Paul? Wouldn't it have been a better thing? Think about this. Remember what 1 Corinthians was about? I think I shared with you guys. 1 Corinthians was, you guys are horrible. You're immoral. You're heretics. You stabbed me in the back. Wouldn't 1 Corinthians been a better place to talk about a judgment <laughs> than 2 Corinthians? How do you think the Corinthians responded to this? Wait a minute, Paul, I thought you liked us. And now this judgment seat? Remember, they had fallen away and come back, and now he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Remember who Paul was writing to, by the way. These were non-Jewish pagans in Corinth who had become Christians. It was a distinctively Greek city with a Greek culture with an intimate knowledge and passion for Greek culture. So let me give you an example. The word judgment seat is the word bima. And you know what's funny is if you go throughout Paul's teaching, he makes reference to Olympics. He makes reference to races and running. And the bima was actually in, in the ancient Olympics. I mean, there are other, other ways to look at the bima. If you were Jewish, it was a place where the Torah was read, but these aren't Jewish people. He's writing them to them as though they were non-Jewish, Greek Hellenists, Greeks who became Christians, right? And so ancient Olympics where a judge would sit on the bema seat at the finish line. Now we know this is possible because the first Olympic Games were from 776 BC to 393 AD. This is plenty of time within there for Olympics to be taking place. And the Greek culture really loved this idea of athletic competition. It was a big part of their culture Everybody understood it. As a matter of fact, Paul makes several references to athletic competitions in his letters. He does it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He does it in 1 Corinthians, the book before, chapter 9, verse 23 and 25. This was the idea, in fact, this day of hope, this, this judgment seat of Christ. He knew that many of the Greeks in Corinth would be very familiar with the word bima, and their first thought would not be the Torah, it would be Olympics. So understand what judgment seat means. What Bema, he's referencing kind of like an end to the race. So today, when you hear me say judgment for the rest of the sermon today, I want you to think finish line. Can we do that? Judgment, finish line. Judgment, finish line. Can you see how this would flow seamlessly with the previous chapter about enduring persecution? Can you see that? Can you see how it all is woven together? So let's look at the theology. Why does God judge Christians? 
I mean, isn't the whole point of Christianity something different? I mean, what purpose is there to have a judgment seat of Christ? Is it salvation? Well, it can't be that, right? Because we know that salvation belongs to the work of Christ on the cross. It's not by works, or else you'd be able to brag. We got that. Is it reward? Well, don't all rewards go to Jesus? Doesn't he get all glory? And should this idea of the judgment of Christians make you nervous? I mean, isn't the whole point of Christianity that, A, we're not capable of good on our own? I mean, isn't that the point? We cannot achieve favor with Heavenly Dad, so Jesus does it for us. Isn't that the point? Isn't the point of Christianity that anything we do that's righteousness is really nothing better than filthy, bloody rags? Isn't the point of Christianity that Christ died so that we could escape judgment? I mean, isn't the whole point of the cross, the wonderful cross, so that we who are in danger of judgment can escape it and become children of blessing instead of children of wrath? I mean, isn't the whole point of Christianity that Christ transfers his perfect righteousness to us and takes our perfect depravity or imperfect depravity, our wickedness, our sinfulness, and puts it on himself and dies for it? Isn't that the whole point? So the question is this, is judgment of Christians in conflict with salvation and sanctification through grace? See guys, this is why understanding of history and theology in a passage is so important. And frankly, this is why teaching book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse is far superior than topical sermon series. Far superior. Because you get a different application of this theology of the judgment seat if you understand it in the context of First and Second Corinthians. Even if you just understand into the context of 2 Corinthians 4, you get a completely different application of the judgment seat of Jesus if you just took chapter 5, verse 5 to 10 and preached on the judgment seat. You have to have the history. Do you see that? You have to have it or else you're going to be flawed in your devotional application to yourself. So what does God do in this passage? The theology, what about God? What does he do and why does he do it? Judgment day preparation. Paul outlines first how we we are prepared for that day. He says in the first part, he who has prepared, who is he? God. And what has he prepared? Our dwelling place, our condition, our salvation, our righteousness, our faith. And then he says in the very next verse, or the very same verse, the second half, who is he prepared and what? And the spirit as a guarantee, what is the guarantee? What is the guarantee? That we will persevere. It's a theology called perseverance of the saints. How does this work in context with this teaching on the judgment seat of Jesus? Have you thought about that? He says, God has done the preparation. He's given us the spirit as the guarantee. And then he says, because God has done the preparation, because he's given the spirit as a guarantee, Be of good courage. Wait a minute. Does impending judgment give you courage? (laughs) I mean, if you read this passage with the concept of, I am in trouble. 
So I am courageously in trouble. He says, God has prepared us. He's given the spirit to guarantee us. Therefore, we are of good courage. And then after those things, he says, we must appear before the judgment seat. Now, how many of you can hear that phrase and just get all warm and cozy in your church chair? Do you notice who is doing the preparation in this passage? Who is it? It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity working together. So now let's look at the devotional application of this, shall we? If grace, then why are works even an issue? He says, but we will all appear before the judgment seat to, give, to, to get what we have coming to us, to receive our reward for the works we've done in the body, whether they be good or evil. I have a couple of passages for you. James 2.18, about three years ago, we did a, like a six-month series on the book of James. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my work. So James says, if you think you have faith, I'm telling you, you better have works to show for it. He says, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you that my faith is real because of works. Maybe that confuses you a little more. That's by design. I'm going to pull the rug out in just a minute, all right? <laughs> James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here's what James is saying. Once the soul leaves the body, the body's dead. If you say you have faith and it doesn't have any works, your faith is dead. It's not real. It's a fake faith. It's a counterfeit. So what James is saying is, look, if you say you have faith, you better have works to show for it. Because faith without works is a scam. It's a lie. So, Let's talk about our deeds. <clears throat> our deeds that are judged at the judgment seat of Christ will be what proves a couple of things. First of all, it will prove that our faith is real. By the way, what is faith? Four years into this, right? What is faith? It's a gift. Our faith is real. So the deeds prove that our faith, the gift of faith, was a real one. That God didn't give us a wooden nickel faith, a counterfeit faith. He didn't try to fool us. Here's faith. Ah, uh, it wasn't really faith. Just kidding you. No transformation for you. Come back one year. <laughs> Seinfeld reference. You know what else our deeds prove? They prove that our lives have been changed. It is impossible. It is impossible for God to passively while you were dead, make you alive in Christ Jesus, give you the gift of faith, which is not of yourselves, or else you'd brag. It's impossible for God to do that for you and not have your life transformed. Impossible. <clears throat> you know what else our, our deeds will prove on Judgment Seat Day? That Jesus did a good job. Judgment Seat, well, Jesus... You did a good job in Chaz, and you did a good job in Mike and Jen, but that Joe Davis guy, your faith thing did not work on him. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. Hey, 75%, that's pretty good. 
You know what the judgment seat does? It proves that Jesus is a good Savior. No, no, not a good Savior. A perfect Lamb of God. A perfect Savior. So what about those works? Works and faith? Does that make you nervous? Back to my favorite Paul passage in the Bible. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, which is a, yeah, very good. And this is not of your own doing. It, faith, is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Okay, breathe deep. Not a result of works so that no one may brag or boast. I love this. For we are his work, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we trip over, that we walk into. Isn't that great? Faith without works is dead. Well, faith will have works. As a matter of fact, you won't be able to avoid them. How powerful is that? Does that give you a whole different view on our works that are judged at the judgment seat of Christ? Not only is my salvation not of me, but my righteousness is not of me. This last part is a little more tricky. See, salvation is owned by faith. We get that, right? Salvation is also shown by deeds. The purpose of the judgment seat is to declare the product of the finished work of faith and the salvation of God's people by the evidence of their deeds. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of salvation. You know what the day of salvation is? Not when you die. It's the judgment seat. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of salvation. It's actually more of a determination of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, who was what? The guarantee. Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit, Jesus saves us. The Holy Spirit keeps us. Perseverance. It's actually more of a determination of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit than it is our ability to muster godliness on our own. Because if you can muster godliness on our own, then you don't need Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10, right? You don't need that because it is of yourself and you can brag. I have gotten myself ready for the judgment seat. I am good. Look at this passage in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, Paul, by the way, wrote this, just so you understand. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but even much more in my absence. In other words, you guys do better when I'm away than when I'm with you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, does that one scare you? Here's what he means. You've always been good. So keep doing it with absolute awe and reverence. What it means is this. Be in awe of what God is doing and let salvation do its thing in you. Let your salvation work out with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean like, I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of heavenly dad. That doesn't sound right unless you stole the car. Okay, what it means is this. Heavenly dad, 
I'm in awe of what you're doing in my life and making me a work of righteousness. For it is God, by the way, I put it in bold just in case you wanted to argue with the scripture. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm going to leave that up there for a second. Do you see it? It is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. Ephesians, he created the good works beforehand that we stumble into. It's God who works in you for his will and his good pleasure. Is it possible that judgment day in this context was meant to be something to look forward to? I mean, look, even if your depravity is on display at the judgment seat of Christ, it doesn't serve to embarrass you or condemn you. There is no embarrassment in Jesus. Perfect love casts out fear. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, right? The scripture says that. If your depravity is somehow on display at the judgment seat, it doesn't serve to condemn us, but to exalt even further the incredible work of Jesus in your life. Look at this depravity, and look at all the good works I was still able to do, even in the midst of being this rotten, filthy sinner. Wow, Jesus, you did a good job. It's an opportunity to send us, get this, I, I, I try to come up with a way to explain how we'll probably feel at the judgment seat. It is an opportunity to send us into a worshiping frenzy over how stunning, stunning the work of Jesus is in our lives. Can you see how grace can make judgment day a day of hope? A day of comfort? It's it's like that feeling you might get before a big test that you have studied for and you have studied for and you know you're going to ace it. And you walk in, man, I am going to have fun filling out those bubbles on this test. I am going to, I'm going to be done in 20 minutes and I can go fishing or shopping or go get a latte or whatever. It's like that feeling, if you've ever been a part of a sports team that won a championship and I've had the privilege of being involved in that, it's like that feeling you get the joy with your teammates the moment you win and the clock counts down to zero, and you're crowned champions. Except this time, it's not because you studied so hard, or practiced so hard, or worked so hard. It's because Jesus did the work, did the study, did the dying, did the resurrecting, and did the work creating, and threw them in front of your feet so you trip over them. See, the judgment seat of Christ finishes the work of Jesus with a final declaration of our righteousness. I'm looking at the evidence, and it is very clear to me that Jesus did save you. You're done. You've done the job. You have finished the course 
You have finished the race. You have reached the finish line. With Jesus and the Spirit as your guarantee, I've prepared a place for you beforehand. It's ready for you. And your works in your life prove that he did a bang-up job of saving you, man. That's what the judgment seat is. It is a vindication of his excellent work in our lives. I can tell you this. I can imagine God be like, well, if, if you could save Pastor Joe, you can save anyone. Let's just start with him. If he's good, the rest of you can go on in. See, this is what the judgment seat of Christ is about. It's not necessarily a judgment of Jesus because Jesus faced that when he died for our sin. But it's a determination, a declaration of the judge at the finish line of the Olympics saying, that was a good race. Jesus, your work has paid off and all your church is redeemed. All your church is righteous. And there's so much evidence that you have transformed them that nobody can say otherwise. So faith resides in and transforms your life. You can see that the judgment seat of Christ is a victorious thing, a thrilling day. Not a day to cringe at in fear like a lot of people have used it to manipulate Christians into giving more money or spending more time or or guilt. That's not what the judgment seat's about. See, this is what living the grace life feels like. When you know that you're going to be in front of the judgment seat and know that grace is greater than all our sin. An old hymn. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. See, that's what grace feels like. It's not fear. It's anticipation. Let's pray. Dad, it's... uh, It's pretty overwhelming when we think about and start taking stock in just how much sin is in our lives. And when we hear flawed teaching about the judgment seat, it can really discourage us. But as we see in the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul was using it as an encouragement to build anticipation. As the Corinthians and he thrived in affliction. God, I just pray that the people that are here today would hear this message about the judgment seat and go away with anticipation of that day and not fear of it. I pray that that day would motivate us more out of joy to make sure that we trip over as many good works as possible. Not be motivated, oh man, I better do better, but just let the Spirit of God who has been given to us as a guarantee work in and through our lives so that when judgment day comes, there is a preponderance of evidence that you, Jesus, have done a great job. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.